James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Let me know when you got it. All right. Reading from the English Standard Version as usual. Beginning at verse 13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And six, and verse 18, then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father. We are asking you for divine help. We pray that you would anoint me and set me apart to preach and teach the scriptures this morning. We pray that through your Holy Spirit, your word would be comprehended and perceived, not just in the mind, but in the heart. Help us to receive whatever it is you have for us today. Father, I pray that you would remove and block all demonic hindrances. We got lights going out, got all type of craziness going on. It's pouring down, raining. Lord, we know these things are designed to be distractions of Satan. But Lord, we know that you are sovereign over all things. So we are praying and appealing to you to take over. And to allow us to be able to move forward with our service without hindrance. Move on the hearts of your people. Even as I speak, I pray that I would be encouraged and edified as I read the scriptures to your sheep. Whatever it is that you desire to do today, Father, we pray that we would be open to it. May you will prompt us through your spirit and guide us so that we'll know what to do and how to move. I pray for spiritual insight and wisdom that leads to application and life transformation. Pray that we would be doers of the word, not just hearers of it. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to be made manifest in our midst. 
We'll be mindful to give your name all the praise, <clears throat> all the honor, and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. In the Old Testament, uh, we are presented with a book titled The Book of Job. This is one of the mo more popular books in the Bible. People who are not even in the church, people who are unbelievers, are in some sense familiar with the book of Job. Just to give you a brief synopsis, the book of Job is a book about a man named Job who was a righteous man. He's not an Israelite. He's a Gentile from a place called the land of Uts. And the scripture says that uh, one day the enemy um, concocted a plan to afflict his life, to turn his world upside down. Job went through many tragedies and hardships and misfortune. In fact, the Bible says that he was covered with boils, with sores from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. Boy was going through it. But in the third chapter, we're told, that Job's three friends came and it says they just wanted to sit with him. Yeah. And it says that for seven days they just sat in his presence and didn't even speak. Yeah. Yeah. You ever had them situations like that when it's so bad it's like, I don't even want to talk about it. Yeah. I just need somebody to sit here and watch me feel miserable. Hallelujah. Sometimes you just need people around you to know that you're going through. They just sat there with him for seven days and nobody spoke. And then after the seventh day, they broke their silence. And then in chapter five, Job's friend by the name of Eliphaz says something very powerful. He gives this speech as he's trying to explain to Job what's happening to him. And then in the fifth chapter, he says, you need to understand that God is the one who wounds but he's also the one who binds up. Then he says, God is the one who shatters, but his hands heal. In the book of Exodus, we're told that the children of Israel were put in harsh bondage in Egypt under Pharaoh and his armies. And it says that God delivered them by outstretching his hand and enabling the man of God, Moses, to perform great miracles, uh, including all these plagues that he brought on the land. Bible says in Exodus chapter 15, after God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry ground, God gave them a speech. And in the speech, he says, if you would hearken unto my voice, that's King James, from my NIV, if you would listen to my voice. <laughs> And keep my commandments. I will not bring upon you these diseases that I placed on Egypt. For I am the Lord, your healer. The Hebrew is Yahweh Rapha, the one who heals. In Psalm 103, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul and all that is within me. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul and forget not his benefits. 
for it is he who forgives your iniquities and heals all your diseases. What can we learn from the last three scriptures I just read? That the ancient Israelites viewed the God of Israel as a God who heals his people. That is the foundation of what they understood about his character. In fact, Messianic Hebrew scholar Dr. Michael Brown wrote a book called Israel's Divine Healer. Going through the Old Testament and showing the period in the history of the Israelites and how God was always faithful to heal. We get to the New Testament and we read the life of Jesus, who was an Israelite. And we're told that he had a ministry that was marked by divine healing. In fact, we don't have any verses of him making anybody sick. We only have verses of him taking their sickness away. Acts chapter 10 says the spirit of the Lord was upon him to do good to all those who were oppressed by the devil and he healed their diseases. Well, the scripture says that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Therefore, Jesus came partially to show us what God was like. So if Jesus' ministry was a ministry that was marked by healing, then that means that God, his father, is also still in the healing business. God is a God who heals. Question is, how do we access this healing? What is the biblical pattern? Let's look at Genesis chapter 20. Just to give a background, King Abimelech has taken Sarah into his house, not understanding that that's Abraham's wife because Abraham lied about it. He's about to commit adultery, so God appears to Abimelech in a dream, and he says, Abimelech, you're a dead man. Then Abimelech explains, I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know, so God extended mercy, and he tells Abraham to go deal with this issue. Look at what it says in verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. This is how we know God don't play with sin. He says, all I need is one person out of order. The consequences will affect the whole home. But if you read the text carefully, it says that Abraham prayed to Yahweh. And in response to Abraham's prayer, God brought healing. Let's look at Book of Kings, chapter 20, 2 Kings, chapter 20. See if we can continue to see this pattern. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, said to him, Thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord, saying, Now, O Lord, please remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart, and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept. Bitterly. 
And before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus saith the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. Once again, we see that that healing comes as a result of prayer. Let's look at Numbers, the 12th chapter. I want you to see the biblical trajectory from the beginning of the Hebrew Bible to the end of it. In this scripture, Miriam and Aaron, Moses' siblings, they are upset with Moses and they want his authority and they rebelled against him. This was very displeasing in the sight of Yahweh. So, so what Yahweh did is he brought leprosy on Miriam as judgment for what she was doing. But look at what Moses said. And Moses cried to the Lord, oh God, please heal her, please. What do all three of these verses have in common? When there is sickness, there is a need of healing, and the healing comes by way of prayer. Today, as we continue our series on spiritual gifts, I want to talk about the controversial spiritual gift of healing. I want to talk about how this gift is related to faith and how it relates to prayer. But before we do that, we need to lay a bit of a theological foundation based on Paul's writings. If we could get 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I want you to pay attention to what Paul says here. He's talking about the gifts, right? To another, faith by the same spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. He's explaining the gifts that God grants to his body. He says some get the gift of faith. Others get gifts of healing. Faith and healing are mentioned next to each other, not randomly. Paul knows what he's doing. When you read this list, there are groupings of gifts, and he keeps the ones that are most similar connected to each other. For example, he says the word of wisdom. Next, he says the word of knowledge. Here, uh, or later in the text, he says the gift of tongues. Then the interpretation of tongues right after it. Here, he has the gift of faith. Then he has gifts of healings. What is he trying to tell us? There is something about faith and the gift of healing that work in conjunction with each other. We're going to explain what the gift of faith is later in the, in, in the, in the message. But I want to focus in on the part that says healing. Typically, when you hear this subject talked about, you know, it's on TV and you find a guy who's having like a revival or something, some type of tent meeting or some type of service at a church, and people flock to the church in groves because they're like, we got people that we know who are sick, we're sick in our body, and we heard that this man of God has the gift of healing. And we interpret that to mean as, well, if he wants to heal, he can do it at will. But when you look at the text carefully, it's not called the gift of healing. It's called gifts. Of healing. In fact, every single time the gift is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, it's always plural. 
Now, the English, unfortunately, even in the ESV, even in the NASB, the word healing is even mistranslated. The only translation I saw that got it right was the old school English revised version and the new King James, believe it or not. The literal Greek and every Greek linguistic scholar will tell you this is true. The Greek is not gifts of healing. It's gifts of healings. This changes the meaning of the text. If it's the gift of healing, then that means that I possess a singular gift in myself and I can use it at will like I can teach when I want to. If I feel like teaching, I pick up the Bible and teach. If I say I got the gift of healing, the implication is whenever I want to heal somebody, all I got to do is heal somebody. But when it's called gifts of healings, it means something different. What does it mean? Paul is saying that there are different types of gifts and healings for different types of diseases. This gift can fall on any believer at any moment in their life. God will grant a gift of healing spontaneously to deal with the need of the moment. In other words, the gift might be uniquely connected to back pain. It's a gift for that type of healing. That doesn't mean that it's going to do anything for migraines. Because it's not the gift of healing, it's a variety of gifts of healings for different types of circumstances. This means that God is sovereign as to when healing takes place, not the man or the woman. Beware of anybody saying, come to my church and I'm going to guarantee a healing. You already know you're dealing with a wolf because nobody in the Bible ever did that but Christ. Or what about Paul? The Bible says that Paul left Trophimus sick, his buddy. The Bible says that Paul told Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach ailments. Well, if he had the gift of healing, why didn't Paul deal with it? Because God didn't give him gifts of healings for stomach problems. It was God's sovereignty that deals out the gifts of healing according to his own will. So you got this gift of faith. <laughs> And we got these gifts of healing. How are they supposed to function in the church? James chapter 5. James is writing to the dispersed 12 tribes of Israel, believing Israelites who have been converted. They are going through severe trial and tribulation. Look at what he says in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering let him pray is anyone cheerful let him sing praise james says is there suffering among you the word is general but it could include sickness but it encompasses even more than that he says is there anybody in your midst suffering let him pray is it anybody cheerful? Is there anybody who's not going through anything major right now? He says, let him sing praise. Notice what James does not say. He doesn't say, is anyone among you suffering? 
Let him lay in bed all day. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him sleep and wallow in depression. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them live and function as if they are already defeated and lost. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them complain and grumble. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them blame God and others. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them abandon God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let them ignore it and pretend like the problems aren't there. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pretend like he's not suffering. He doesn't say any of that. He says this is the natural response to suffering. Let him pray. Then he says, if you're cheerful, life is going well. Don't just go on and forget about God. Don't just act as though it's by happenstance that things are going well for you right now. He says, if you're cheerful, sing praise. The word praise there in, in, in the Greek uh, most likely was, is referring to the Psalms, which means that since he's writing to the dispersed 12 tribes of Israel, he's saying, let you sing the Old Testament Psalms. If you don't know what to say to give God praise, just open up to Psalms, 150 of them. There's plenty of exhortations to worship. So here's the first thing we understand about suffering, prayer, sickness, and healing. Our first line of defense should be what? Prayer. From us to God directly. Isn't it interesting that when we go through things, our first response is to call other people? You ever notice that? Soon as you get bad news or soon as something's going on or soon as something sparks fear or concern in your heart, so often the natural response is to turn to something else. And as we're going to see in the text, nothing wrong with turning to your brother, but what should be the first line of defense? It's to go to God directly. Why? <laughs> I'm going to show you how Jesus modeled this. Let me get Hebrews. Chapter 5, verse 7. Look at what it says. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Look at how the son of God modeled this for us. It says in the days of his flesh, Jesus lived about how many years? 33. Last three years were ministry. It says that when he was on earth, he spent his time giving God loud cries of prayer and tears. Why? Because he knew that God was the one who was able to save him from death. Here's why our first line of defense when we're suffering should be prayer. You're appealing to the sovereign God of the universe who alone has the ability to change the situation. Anybody else we reach out to cannot change the situation. Not in and of themselves. So why would we not take God up on his opportunity to appeal to him? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, Now unto him who was able to do exceedingly, abundantly 
above anything we can ask or even imagine according to the power that worketh in us. Now, if we do this, does that guarantee that whatever we pray for is going to come to pass? No. (laughs) Quick answer. Long answer is there are certain things that God sees that we don't see that can hinder us receiving the request that we've given him. One of the best examples I can find of this, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul has this thorn in his side. We don't know what it was. Some say it was a physical condition. Some say it was false teachers. Most would say it was something physical. Whatever it was, the Bible says that Paul pleaded with the Lord three times that he might take it away. And what did God tell him? My grace is enough for you. Strength is made perfect in weakness. Some of you are going through suffering or maybe even sickness and you're praying for healing and deliverance. And you think that the reason things aren't changing is because you did something wrong. Not necessarily. Perhaps God sees something in you that you don't see. Perhaps he understands that he has something better for you than what you're asking for. We're often asking for healing and deliverance. Sometimes God says what you really need is unmerited favor. You need grace to persevere. Is anyone among you suffering? They should do what? Pray. Now look at what he says in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let's just stop there. First, it's anyone among you suffering, let him pray. James could have left it there, but he doesn't. He says also, if anyone is among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Notice the word elders is plural, right? Is that singular or plural? That's plural. Notice he didn't say let him call for the pastor of the church or for the elder of the church or for the bishop of the church or for the prophet of the church or for the apostle of the church. He doesn't say that. He says call for the elders plural. Why? Because there were no lead or senior pastors in biblical times. We made that up. We gave all authority and power to one man in the church. That's not how God designed it. There was a council of elders. So he says, let the sick person call for the elders. Now, for most of us who are Christians, who's been in church, we have an expectation from the elders, from the pastors. Here's the unsaid and sometimes said expectation. When I'm going through something, the pastors need to be reaching out to me to deal with whatever I'm going through. In fact, the pastors need to reach out to me before they even know. They need to be close enough to God to know that I'm having a bad day. It is their sole purpose in life (laughs) to reach out to me and everybody else in the church too and figure out how I'm doing. (laughs) 
<clears throat> now, before I deal with that, <laughs> let me put out my disclaimer. Shepherds do have a responsibility to watch over Jesus' sheep. The scriptures are crystal clear. Care for them. Reach out to them. Check up on them. They're supposed to do that with joy. Amen? However, when I read this text, it says, let the sick person call for the elders. Culturally, we flip that. It's all on the elders to make sure everybody's doing well and to read everybody's mind and to have some omniscient gift of prophecy that gives them unlimited wisdom and knowledge about every situation in the church. And then when they don't know it, they view it as if they don't have discernment. <clears throat> that wouldn't happen here, though, right? James says the congregation have a responsibility to reach out, to call out, to not keep everything private. Let the elders know you are sick. Don't hide it in the name of privacy. Don't cry yourself to sleep every night about something nobody else knows about. James says the commandment of the Lord. Do, raise your hand if you believe the Bible is inspired by God. Okay, keep your hand raised if you believe the Holy Spirit breathed out James' words. Okay, so God said through James, if you are going through sickness and you desire healing, you should do what? Reach out to the elders. Call on them. Culturally, y'all, what we've done, and it's, it's made its way into the church, we live in a culture of secrecy, man. Everything's a secret. Everything is private. Oh, oh, I just don't want to bother nobody. Oh, or, or I, you know, I'm just, oh, the Lord has strengthened me to deal with this. And, and the Lord is, and we just, we spiritualize it all. But you know what it really is? It's really pride. I don't need nobody. I can deal with this on my own. Listen, bother me. Bother, blow my phone up if you got to. I'm going to get to you as soon as I can. Call members of our leadership board. Our responsibility is to watch over the souls of God's sheep. You have an open invitation. I can't promise I'm going to be available for every different thing, but I promise I'm going to make myself available at some point. He said, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders. Now, the elders are supposed to do three things. Number one, pray over him. First, it's suffering person, pray for yourself. But James says that ain't always enough. The power of intercession is underrated. He says call for the elders and let them pray over you. Now, why would the elders be doing that? We're going to explain shortly. Second thing, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oil had medicinal purposes back then, but most likely 
uh, what James is referring to is the symbolic nature of oil. Oil was used when the kings were anointed by God. When people were set apart to do a specific work, whether it was prophets or kings or priests, they were anointed with oil. So what, so what James is saying is that if somebody is about to receive healing, anoint them with oil, symbolically uh, signaling that God is setting them apart for a special work that he's about to do. So they pray over him, right? And they anoint him with oil. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. We're about to spend some time here. Pray, anoint with oil. Number three, pray with what? Faith. What is it about this praying with faith for sick people that made God say, I want the elders to primarily be responsible for this? Number one, a word that is often abused but is biblical, and that's spiritual authority. Those who hold the office of elder have been set apart for a specific work, and God's anointing is on them to do a specific thing the way God's anointing is on you to do what God has called you to do. But there's another reason I believe this goes to the elders. The elders were the shepherds of the church. And if you know anything about ancient Middle Eastern culture, literal shepherds who tended to literal sheep took physical care of the sheep. The sheep that were wounded and injured were cared for by the shepherds. They would carry slingshots to keep the wild beast away. They would carry a staff so they can count all the sheep to make sure none are missing. They had a responsibility to care for the well-being of the sheep. So spiritually, God says they're still responsible of caring for the well-being of the sheep. So they are the most uh, prominent ones who are to do this healing work. But he doesn't say the prayer will save them. He says the prayer of faith. Now, I'm be honest with y'all. For years, this verse has troubled me a lot. And here's why. I see a guarantee in this prayer that if the elders pray with faith, there's guaranteed recovery. Do, you, do, y- do y'all see that or is it just me? I don't see no clause in there. It looks like if... if If the model is followed, then there's this guaranteed healing that God would raise this person up. But I know I've prayed for people with as much faith as I could monster up, (laughs) muster up, as much faith as I could conjure up, and they were not healed. Perhaps you have prayed for people with faith. And you know you believed. Not perfect belief, but you believed. And they were not healed. Christians all over the world has prayed for the sick. And they were not healed. This troubles the student of the Bible. Because now I get to start feeling like I got to get God off the hook. Because it's looking on the surface that what the scriptures say aren't coming to pass. 
But I know according to the Bible that God does not lie, nor can he lie. I know according to the Bible that God is light and in him there is no darkness. I know the word of God is true and I stand on it. So there has to be a way to interpret this that doesn't make it look like God is contradicting himself. Here's what I believe is going on here. And when I say I believe, I'm saying me and, and, and dozens of other scholars and theologians. When James said the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, he is not talking about some self-generated prayer that all Christians are supposed to have. He's not saying, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, until you believe. He's not talking about some normal kind of faith here. James seems to be referring to what Paul called in 1 Corinthians 12, which we read earlier, the gift of faith. That already changes this interpretation. Because now it's all on God's back now. Because he's sovereignly given this gift. What we believe James is saying is that when the Elders are praying for the sick, and when God bestows the gift of faith on them, they will pray with a sense of confidence that will guarantee the healing. In other words, the gift of faith is what Jesus referred to in Mark chapter 11. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 11, verse 22. And Jesus answered them, have faith in who? God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Let's stop for a minute. Leave it there. Jesus just cursed the fig tree and it withered up and his disciples are blown away by it. Jesus' response is, you see this mountain over here? He's most likely talking about the Mount of Olives or the, the temple mount that the temple was standing on. He says, you see this mountain? If you say to this mountain, be uprooted out of its foundation and be cast into the sea, it will be done for you if you don't doubt, but you believe. That's what he says, right? This is often interpreted to be metaphorical. When he says mountain, he's not talking about moving literal mountains. He's saying that a literal mountain is firmly rooted in the ground, right? Can you humanly move a mountain? No, wherever it is is where it will always be. Meaning it is humanly impossible to move a mountain. But with divine intervention, it's possible. Therefore, the mountain represents any situation in your life that cannot be changed outside of divine intervention. Now, let's take a few moments and think about what that is in your life. It could be a sickness. It could be some type of disease, mental, physical. It could be um, just whatever situation you find yourself in, you like, this too big for me to change. No human can alter this. Once you realize what that thing is, you now understand that's your mountain. 
Now, Jesus says, speak to the mountain, right? This is where word, faith, prosperity, theology comes in, where you get all the speaking it into existence talk. What it becomes is having belief in what you say because you are inherently powerful. But is that what Jesus means? Terrell, let's go back to verse 22. Look what he says first before he says, move this mountain. Here, I'll tell you what he says. There he is. He says, have faith in who? Have faith in who? He does not say have faith in self or have faith in your words. He says have faith in God. Why? Because God is ultimately the one moving the mountain. But, but Brian, that still doesn't help me because what if I speak to this mountain and nothing changes? Let's go to the next verse. One more, please. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. Wait a second. I thought he was talking about declaring, speaking things. No. He's talking about prayer. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. What is he talking about? He's saying this gift of faith that God will give you in a situation. When God grants a believer the gift of faith, they have unshakable confidence that God is about to do the impossible. When that happens, you speak to the mountain. You do not speak to no mountain apart from God giving you divine faith. That mountain will be there. But when God gives you this unshakable faith, this unshakable confidence, now I can look at that mountain and say, you got a couple more days. I can look at a disease and I can pray over it with power and authority. Why? Because God has already given me the prophetic word that this shall come to pass. This is the gift of faith. It is the prayer that moves mountains. Let's go back to James. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. Now, usually you go to your neighborhood prayer revival, they're going to guarantee healing, and then when nobody gets healed, they'll say the people didn't have enough faith, right? Isn't it ironic that the person required to have faith here is not the sick person, but the actual leader? Maybe, it's, maybe they're the reason healing isn't taking place. I understand that we have human responsibility. We know Matthew chapter 9, Jesus heals the blind man. He says, do you believe I can do this? The blind man says, yes. Jesus heals him and said, according to your faith, it will be done for you. I'm not getting us off the hook. Yes, we're required to have faith. But in this text, it don't look like that man had faith. Looked like he was too incapacitated. Perhaps that's why they said you need to call for help. Sometimes you ain't got enough faith in yourself to believe no more. It was the leader's responsibility to believe. So what am I saying here? God gives the gift of faith to the person praying, and then the person praying over the sick person heals them because God has given them unshakable faith, so it guarantees the healing. Now, that's saying a whole lot. Whenever I study the Bible, when I come up with an interpretation, here's my little tip that I do. I just look for one example in the biblical narrative where it happened. All I need is one. (laughs) 
Do we have any examples in Scripture of God clearly granting the gift of faith to a person that guaranteed their healing? Don't put it on the screen yet, T. T, read my mind. I know where you're about to go. In Acts chapter 3, we're told the story about a man who was a beggar. And according to the scriptures, he's at the gate called Beautiful. And the Bible says that he's outside panhandling, basically. He's asking for money. He's begging for alms. He's looking for donations. Anybody ever read that story? He's, he's looking for somebody to give him some change. He's not looking for Jesus. He's not looking for the Father. He's not looking for healing. He's looking for monetary gain. Amen? He's begging for money. And the Bible says that Peter and John sees this man who was blind from birth. And they walk up to him. And the text says they fixed their gaze on him. That's a word that's used to indicate a supernatural transaction. It says they, they fixed their gaze on him and they said, look at us. And the man looked at them. And they said, silver and gold have I not. But in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I tell you, rise up and walk. And it says the man leaped up to his feet as if nothing was ever wrong with him. Now, what I'm about to show you is the book of Acts. Luke is writing it. He's explaining to us why and how Peter and John had the confidence to look at this man and to declare his healing like that. Let me get Acts chapter 3 verse 16. This is Peter and John talking. Look at what it's, they're asking him, how did you heal this man? Look at their response. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Now let's stop. They says, here's how this man is healed. It is by faith in the name of Jesus that has healed this man. Everybody see that? They believed in Jesus and that gave them authority and the ability to heal. Does everybody see that? Look at what it says next. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The first part says they had faith in Jesus. That's who they believe. The second part is not a synonym. He's not repeating himself. He says, but it is also the faith that is coming through Jesus. Whoa, that's giving this man perfect faith. What is he saying? He's saying it is the object of our faith, Jesus, that is healing him. But it is the source of our faith, Jesus, that's healing him. What he's telling them is that Jesus gave us the gift of faith. And then as a result of him giving us the gift of faith, we use this faith to believe in Jesus. Meaning Jesus is not just the object of our faith. He is the source of it. This is the gift of faith live and in action. When God, it, it, is, it is as if Jesus is at the right hand of the father. 
And, and remember Jesus' promise after the, after the resurrection, he says, go into all the earth, making disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And, bapt- you know, and, he, says, and he says, and lo, I will be with you always so so as they are on mission jesus right behind them who we healing next who what we gonna do next oh we got a blind person here oh oh he's deaf we're we gonna get him oh this person can't walk we're gonna get him and he's granting them faith when they need it peter and john can't believe on their own how can you believe in a god who's created the whole earth and you wasn't there to witness it and believe that on your own we need the gift of faith to even live a christian life let alone perform the miraculous so when the elders, or even you, because healing, as we're going to see, is not limited to the elders. When we're in the midst, and God grants gifts of faith, gifts of healing are guaranteed. We can't control when he gives gifts of faith. We can't control when he grants gifts of healing. But all we can do is make ourselves available for it. A couple more points and we gone. Says the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Why did he say that? Verse 16, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. First line of defense, pray for yourself. Second line of defense, call for the elders to pray for you. Third line of defense, pray for one another with a clean heart. He says, church, make sure you confess your sins one to another. This means that we have a responsibility not to just go to God and confess our sins. First John 1 and 9, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's not the only confession we're required to do. He says, go to your dear brother and your sister in community that you're living amongst. And he says, be, make it a normative practice to confess your sins to each other. There should be no such thing as secret sins in the community of faith. He says, when you do this and when you pray for one another, he says, here's what will happen. He says, you'll be healed. That could be spiritual and physical healing at the same time. We know it's a spiritual sense because you ever confess your sins to a brother and sister and you just feel this weight lifted off of you? It's like you holding on to something and you're like, I'm embarrassed, I'm ashamed. But you feel so much better when you just say, hey, let me just tell you what I did, man. I messed up. I, I, I didn't honor the Lord with this. It's a sense of healing that comes from that. But throughout the context, James talking about physical healing. But he says you got to confess your sins in order to experience it. Listen, there's a lot of different reasons why people don't experience healing, and one of them is sin. I would even say that's a major one. Let me get uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Here's a popular verse. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and, and what? And seek my face and turn. That's the part we want to skip. We want to say... We, we seek his face and pray. He's going to heal the land. No, no, no. And turn from your wickedness. Then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So, again, you see this connection to prayer and healing, but you also see a connection of repentance and healing. Listen, James is writing this to a bunch of Israelites. They know the Old Testament. 
They know the Proverbs say that the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to God. They know that the scripture says that if we regard iniquity in our heart, he does not hear us. He says you got to confess your sins to each other because sins will actually block divine healing. So we have a responsibility to pray for each other. Let me challenge you. Is that a lifestyle practice that you have? Are your deepest struggles known by nobody but you? That's an easy way to stay in bondage for life. I can tell you that. If you got sins you're struggling with, you're committing, you're battling, and nobody knows but you, you will most likely die in that. Because God has sent the community to help us get free, to encourage each other. Confess your sins one for another and pray for each other even for divine healing. Now, he's saying you want to pray with a clean heart. Verse 16 says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as at its working. Notice it does not say uh, the righteous person has great power as it is working. He, he don't say the power is in the righteous person. And we got to say that because now you got little God's doctrine. You know, I'm, I'm like, God made me in his image, so I'm like him. I'm a little G-O-D, so that God can create, I can create, and God can speak, and I can speak, and God can do this, and so that means I can do that. And it's looking in the self. That's why we got Christians over here going around talking about some manifesting. How you a Christian talking about manifesting stuff? That stuff is witchcraft. Clearly demonic. You, 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 and it's, and it's self-private. See, let me explain something to you. Here's how you know something is rooted in the devil when it bears the devil's characteristics. The Bible says that Satan was, a, was, a, was an individual who was filled with a heart of pride. What type of pride says that I can manifest my own reality? That's how you know it's the devil. But we go around a manifesting and a manifesting and a manifesting, and we're looking to ourselves to create our own reality. But James says it's not the righteous person that has any power. It is the prayer of the righteous person. That's not clear enough. James closes us out with an illustration. He says, Elijah, whom I named my firstborn son after. You got to listen to this, son. About to boast on your namesake. It says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah the Tishbite. The prophet. This is the same Elijah who called fire down from heaven. This is the same Elijah who went into the widow's house in the middle of a famine and preserved her meal in the middle of a drought so that she could eat eternally. This is the same Elijah who who when the widow's son died, Bible says Elijah picked the boy up threw him on the bed and stretched out on him three times and cried out, Lord, let this child's life return to him. And God raised him from the dead. Talking about that Elijah. Talking about the Elijah who gave a double portion of his spirit to Elisha. And then Elisha doubles the amount of miracles that Elijah did. That Elijah. I'm talking about the Elijah whom the Bible says John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Then Jesus says there ain't no prophet greater than John the Baptist. I'm talking about the Elijah that some theologians believe that before Christ come back, Elijah's going to return to perform miracles to bring redemption to the Jewish people. My God, my God. 
the great prophet Elijah, in all his miraculous workings, James says he was a man with a nature like ours. He says, don't get it twisted. Elijah was just like the rest of you. It's nothing special about him. He prayed fervently. The Greek literally says he prayed with prayer, which is an emphatic term. He says he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Do you hear the encouragement in this? He's saying the same prayer of faith that Elijah had. You can do. When you go back to Kings and you read the story, here's the prayer it's talking about. It says that Elijah was praying that the rain returned, and it says that Elijah went by the mountain, and it says he did this. Yeah, uh-huh. It said he put his head in between his knees. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Talk about it. And it says he was travailing in prayer. Some theologian says he was mimicking the act of a woman giving birth, talking about the travailing that goes through prayer, and he's praying with all he got. And he says, go to tell my servant, look into the clouds, do you see anything? And the man says, I see clouds coming. And it says, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he ran to outrun the rainstorm that came down. James says the same type of faith God can bestow on you, not just elders, not just prophets. Not just every man, woman, boy, girl who has the Holy Spirit of Yahweh living inside of them can receive this. So when we're talking about gifts of healing and gifts of faith, let us understand that it's possible and that God is sovereign. He determines who gets healed and who doesn't. But we're going to trust him in the scriptures to do it and and open up opportunities for it to be done. And we're going to let God be sovereign.